Our reading from God's Word is in Joel chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yes, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. He knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Let's begin with a word of prayer together. God, we have heard that you call us to worship your magnificent glory. We've confessed that we are nothing and we do not deserve to see you, to receive blessing from you. We do not know how to give you the glory you deserve. So you call us to hear your word. You call us to receive your word now that we would have a clearer picture. That our eyes would be open to see what you are doing in this world to glorify yourself. That our hearts would be enabled to glorify you, to follow you, to obey you. That we would be able to share this word that's planted deep in our hearts. I pray that this would result in much fruit in our lives. To go forth. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, that we would cling to you, Father, in Christ, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. When we adopted one of our children when she was only four years old, she was a girl full of a lot of fear. She was afraid of everything. And why wouldn't she be? She, she's been pulled out of her, the other side of the world, surrounded by people she doesn't know, smells, sights, tastes. Nothing is familiar to her. She doesn't even trust her own dad, who was recently declared her legal father. But that legal declaration from the judge meant nothing to her emotions. Who could she trust? In order to build a bond of trust between us, we had to take our time, wait many years it seemed, just doing the ordinary thing, loving her, reading to her, singing to her, feeding her, bathing her, cuddling with her. Hopefully we would see a bond of trust develop. But I was a little impatient. I wanted it to happen much sooner. So I devised an ingenious plan to make her trust me where she had no choice but to cling to me. I threw her in the deep end of a swimming pool. I'm serious. She had no idea how to swim, didn't spend a day of her life yet in a swimming pool. She was in a new place where she could trust nothing. So with me jumping in with her, of course, she had no choice but to cling to me. 
I jumped in, grabbed her, pulled her tight and said, look at me in the eyes, honey. Look at me. Cling tight to me. I love you. I love you. I love you. You can trust that you are safe in my arms, sweetheart. And it worked like a charm. Within weeks, she was jumping from the side of the pool into my awaiting arms full of joy. A few weeks later, she could float on her back with me at arm's length knowing I would be there to help her. And today, she swims like a little fish without ever once having a swimming lesson. And she would proudly boast that her daddy taught her how to swim. She gained all of that joyful freedom because I threw her into the deep end of the pool. Last Sunday, Jake brought us the really difficult message of the truth about suffering and what God is doing through our suffering in the book of Hosea. It's a heavy topic. It's a difficult thing. It hurts. Nobody asks for suffering. We don't want it. But it is designed to bring us into a deeper, more trusting relationship with our Father. Hosea revealed to us God's heart behind throwing us into the deep end. He loves us and wants us to desperately cling to Him. But sometimes it's hard to see through that suffering. We don't know how to swim, so we're thrashing around and our eyes are underwater. We can't see Him. We wonder, is God really up to good in this? Suffering in our lives can take on many different forms. Perhaps it's a corporate experience like the national tragedy of 9-11 that we remembered this week. Or a generational hurricane that sweeps up the entire East Coast. Maybe suffering in your life is just this ongoing drip where the structures of society seem to be stacked against you and you can't get ahead. Or it's more personal. A job loss, a health crisis, broken or lost relationships that leave you with an attachment wound. You walk with a limp. It's hard to function normally, right? Or perhaps you suffer with depression and the darkness just crowds in. It feels like the waves are just crashing over you. You can't see if God has any purpose in it. The book of Hosea reminded us that God is good through it. His heart is for you in it. And now we turn to the book of Joel that tells us how we are to endure when these trials come upon us. When God throws us in the deep end of the pool. Joel's message for us all is to repent for the day of the Lord is near. Repent for the day of the Lord is near. It's very near. Much nearer than any of you imagine. It was nearer than Israel realized when Joel brought this message of national destruction to them. It was much nearer than the Jews realized when John the Baptist and Jesus brought the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now, 2,000 years later, it's much closer than you realize. Every single time you are confronted with the brokenness of this world, God is calling you to repent. For the kingdom, the day of the Lord is near. The big question as we read the book of Joel, though, is what is this day of the Lord? The primary theme throughout this whole book, three short chapters, is this day of the Lord. It sounds intense. And that's what we're trying to understand here in this book. The day of the Lord isn't 
just someday long into the future when Jesus returns and judges the whole world. But it also seems to be more than when God brought judgment upon Israel by bringing the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans later on to destroy Jerusalem. It does seem to be all those things, but it's also every time God throws you into the deep end of the pool to make you cling to Him. So another way we might say our main idea today in a less Jewish way is when your day of trial arrives, cling to God's salvation. Like a child in the deep end of the pool, gaze into His eyes. Cling to His embrace through His Spirit-filled people. Listen to Him through His words of affection in the Scriptures. We're going to see this day of the Lord throughout the book of Joel. It's both a, a day of difficulty and of joy. Bad and good. Destruction and restoration. Judgment and salvation. We'll take a look starting in chapter 2, verse 11, and explore this day of judgment that's in the first half to third of the book. And then we'll turn the coin over. This exact same day is also a day of salvation we will see in verses 12 to 14. When you have eyes to see God working in this way, you can endure whatever trials God throws into your life by clinging to Him on that day. So turn back to chapter 2, verse 11, and let's look at this day of judgment. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? If you've spent any time reading any of the prophets, you may have, as you read through it, thought like me, what in the world is going on here? You get lost in all of these prophets and they all seem to be saying the same thing, right? Israel did something bad, they're in trouble for it. I got it. That could have been one short sentence. You didn't need 14, 15 prophets to tell me that. The names and the geography, the names of the nations and all the cultural elements seem so foreign to us, it makes it hard for us to distinguish the difference between all of these messages. And then you open the book of Joel and it makes it even harder because there's very little detail to indicate when this is occurring, what he's addressing, to whom he's writing it. We know nothing about Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't have a clue who he's writing to. He doesn't say anything about the specific sin that Israel committed. The book of Hosea, that was specific. Their idolatry is like spiritual adultery to God. But Joel simply assumes the sin and says, you Israel are in trouble. But there are hints throughout this text on how we're supposed to understand this short prophecy. And the book begins with this Great and mighty locust plague. Locusts like grasshoppers, and they would swarm upon a land and devour everything, and this was a terrible one. Eating everything in sight, affecting every plant and animal, leaving them all to go hungry. And whether this is an actual swarm of locusts or a metaphor for something greater, doesn't really matter. 
Because the imagery is deliberate to tell Israel, to warn Israel of something spiritually disastrous happening. When was the last time we heard about a locust plague in the Bible? It was back in the Exodus. God sent locusts into Egypt to judge Egypt. To rescue His people and judge Egypt for their wickedness. And there was all kinds of other plagues. Some involved darkness covering the land or illness spreading to all the animals in the land. Joel is picking up on much of this imagery to say the judgment that the nations deserve has come upon Israel. Israel is just as wicked as Egypt and deserves Egypt's plagues. But even what they're already experiencing isn't even the whole of it. It's about to get way worse. More is coming. So chapter 2 transitions from the plague of locusts happening now to a future infestation of locusts that's going to be far worse. Those locusts are going to be more powerful. They picture becomes an army commanded by God who comes upon the city walls, climbs over them, enters into every single person's home and plunders it. Destroying every person in the city. And verse 11 caps it all off. Reminding Israel, this is no coincidence. It's not an accident. The wind just didn't pick up and happen to blow them into Israel. These nations that are swarming all around them aren't rogue nations outside of God's control. They are sent By God's hand. Verse 11 says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. It's His army of locusts and His army that's coming upon the city following His orders to execute His great day of judgment. The judgment is so great that Joel wonders who can possibly endure it. Obviously, it's a rhetorical question saying nobody will be left standing. I myself wonder, when suffering, we see suffering in this world, how does anybody survive without knowing that God is in complete control? How can someone go about their life without knowing that God's hand is in it all? When God brings judgment, nobody can survive. Everyone is in trouble. Nobody can say that their bloodline, their ancestry earns them favor. Nobody can say, well, I'm, I'm part of this people group, so we are more favored people. All have sinned and fall short of the obligations God has on us who live in His world. So the question remains, when is this coming day of the Lord? When will this judgment come upon us? I think that Joel deliberately leaves it vague so that not a single person reading his prophecy can just brush it off like it doesn't matter to me. You can't look to the past, look at the details and say, oh, that applies only to Israel. And so we're safe now because, oh, God is more forgiving today. But you can't look far off into the future and say, well, there's a bunch of signs and wonders that have to go along with it and I haven't seen those yet, so I can take it easy for a while. Joel leaves it vague so we feel the urgency in the text. Everyone who reads this prophecy must 
be confronted with the reality that God is in control of every single circumstance in your life. Every circumstance you find yourself in, whether good or bad, joyful or dreadful, is from the hand of God. The context is deliberately left vague to help you see that this story is not about Israel. Your story is not about you. It's all about God. Including Joel's own name, which means Yahweh is God. God's name, Yahweh, the Lord in all caps in in your Bible, is in this book of Joel. Three chapters, 33 times. The first verse is about Yahweh, the Lord. The last verse is about Yahweh, the Lord. It's all about Him. Yahweh sits on His throne. He dwells in Zion. He is commanding every detail of His earth. This is the purpose of every trial in history. This is the purpose of every challenge in your life. To make you desperate to cling to Him. To see that no matter what comes your way, He is the only constant. He is the only solid foundation to hold on to. God is on His throne and He will accomplish His purposes in the world. And if you are a rebel to Him, this day of judgment, day of the Lord is only judgment to you. It will be a dark and terrible day. Full of despair and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for those whom He loves, they're also an instrument of God's own power of His use to make you more like Him, to make you cling to Him, to long for Him, to look at His face and find peace in Him alone. The lack of any description of any single sin, particular sin in this book, helps us see that sometimes trouble is not about a particular sin, but just about your heart in general, about your character. Suffering isn't always the result of a specific sin, but simply is God's tool to shape and discipline His people. So the Pharisees once asked Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They, like many Jews, believed that sin or that suffering was always and only the result of a particular sin. And like Job's friends, you had to go to that suffering person and help them identify what the sin is so they could repent of it. But Jesus said they didn't understand God's purposes. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him, in his life. The man was thrown into the deep end of the pool so that everyone could see that God is strong and mighty, that his love is powerful to save. Oftentimes, the heavy hand of discipline isn't because of a particular sin. It's just because you are a sinner and God wants to beat it all out of you. To help you look to Him. So that He is your only source of joy and peace. Molly and I have talked a lot over the last couple of years through our season of health trials. And and we've wondered, it's good to ask yourself when you're suffering, What does God want me to learn through this? What does He want us to understand to come out of this with? That's a good question to ask yourself when you suffer. But there's limits to that question because sometimes what He wants you to learn isn't a particular thing. 
He just wants you to rest in Him, to cling to Him alone. We've prayed so many times, God, please, take this away from us. Show us what You want us to learn so we can learn it already. Whatever my stubborn, hard heart is refusing to learn, teach me already so we can move on. But it's not that simple. If you are His, God's hand of discipline isn't to remind you that you're a bad person and that you need to do better. It's not to punish you for your sins. God throws you into the deep end out of His own loving kindness to say, look at me. Cling to me. I love you. Nothing you do can bring you rest and peace. Nothing in this world can satisfy you. Turn to me. And I will give you everything your heart longs for. Rest in peace through this trial and complete healing on that final day of the Lord. Suffering is for your joy, brothers and sisters, to bring you blessings. This day of the Lord is also a day of salvation. Let's see how he says that starting in verse 12. Turning Joel's coin over and seeing this day of salvation. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord our God. The key to seeing the day of the Lord as a day of salvation for you is repentance. We see in verse 12. Repentance, he says, is more than simply being sorry you got caught. It's even more than realizing you did something wrong. We see with God as the primary actor in the story that sin isn't simply about doing something wrong, breaking some law code. Sin is not trusting Him, not giving Him your life, not following Him, not obeying Him, not delighting in Him. So repentance then is turning from whatever you do and clinging to Him alone. You are all I want, Father. Putting all your trust in Him. So to keep our metaphor going, if you're struggling in the deep end of the pool, repentance is stop thrashing around and screaming And be quiet and take hold of Him. The Father who's right there in the pool with you. Repentance, we often think, is just what we do to start our Christian life. As though, okay, I turned from my sin, now I'm climbing out of the pool on my own. Martin Luther said in his first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of a believer, to be one of repentance. This is what Joel wants us to know. A whole life of repentance. We don't know what the specific sin is. We don't know what who the primary audience is. This The general nature of the book and focusing on God as the primary character leads us just to say, all of life is meant to focus our eyes on Him. That is repentance. Every single day is a day of the Lord calling us to cling to Him through His people, to hear His voice and gaze into His eyes by His Word. 
You don't just tear your garments to put on a show like, oh, look at me repenting. I go to church and I cry and sing songs. No. Repentance is the deepest parts of your heart saying, I want you and you alone, Father. I have nothing else. That was the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas was repentant, sort of. He was sorry about what he had done. He wept over it. He took the money and gave it back. I don't want this. But where did he go? He ran away from Christ. But Peter, he wept. And he put his face down before the Lord. And God, Jesus lifted him back up and he clung to his Savior. Because he is all he really wanted. But don't be mistaken, my friends, it's not just the depth of sorrow or the extent of your repentance that earns you some kind of forgiveness. The only foundation for our salvation is the character of God. Look at verse 13. Return to the Lord your God. Just because you repented and turned to Him doesn't mean He should forgive you. It says, return to the Lord your God for, because... The key word, because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The foundation for salvation can only be God's steadfast love, his own commitment to his covenantal purposes to put his love on display. We see this covenantal formula all over the Bible. Yahweh, the Lord, is God's name for his covenant people so that they can look to him and know him personally. You are our Father, Yahweh. Steadfast love is a special word for love. Not just the normal word for love, but a word that means God's promises to keep His covenant. The only reason God saves anyone is because of His abundant steadfast love. Eight times this phrase that Joel uses here is used throughout the Bible to Display God's merciful character before a people who are unworthy of His kindness. So Moses hides himself in the cleft of the rock and God shows his back as he passes by. And what does he hear as God goes by? Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the character even that Jonah, as we'll hear about in a couple weeks, Jonah knew this character. He knew God was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which is why he ran from Nineveh. You're going to save those people and I hate them. So he ran away. But Joel says, this day of the Lord is a day of salvation for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. The name of the one who is abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't save us simply because He's forgiving and And if you ask Him to forgive you, He will. He saves us because of His covenant love. He promises to show off His kindness through His covenant people. And when He does save you, it's not simply relief from your suffering, but it's in order to receive a special blessing of His presence. Verse 14 tells us that when He saves a repentant person who clings to Him, he might, he may leave behind a blessing. But the wording is a little difficult. We shouldn't read that as, uh, as conditional. Like, he saves you, and he might or he might not give you a blessing. 
The whole point of his covenants is to say, when he saves you, he is giving you abundant blessings. The promise of his covenants is to give blessings for faithfulness. The question is, who is faithful? That's the condition. Who can endure in faithfulness? Who will repent properly? Clearly, the answer to that from Joel's prophecy is nobody. But God promised. How will He keep His steadfast love towards an unfaithful people in order to give them His promised blessing? Let's go back to this idea of the day of the Lord. In chapter 1, we saw that the day of the Lord was a past event. God judging Egypt and saving Israel. And now, in the context, as far as we can tell, it seems like it's a warning about a soon coming day when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And then in chapter 3 of Joel, it sounds more like a day far off in the future. When, when God comes back in power and authority and judges all nations and restores the earth to Edenic state. The day of the Lord is so confusing throughout. It's both judgment and salvation. Past, present, and future. What's going on here? Peter brings the whole thing into focus for us on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2. Jesus had just died on the cross. The only righteous man in history who seemed to earn all these blessings was crucified. But He rose from the dead. Death couldn't hold Him down. He ascended into heaven and poured out His Spirit on His people. Great, mighty acts of love and power on display right before the watching world making them go, what is happening here? So Peter stands up before them, opens his scroll of Joel, apparently. Didn't have a book. And he reads the end of Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, and vapor comes. Vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says that Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead and pouring out His promised blessing of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the day of the Lord. Jesus took upon Himself the identity of rebellious Israel. He took their punishment. While He was on the cross, the sky darkened. The plagues are coming on Him. The locusts of the Roman Empire coming on Him to judge Him. The Father turned His face away. And yet, this terrible judgment is also the day of glorious salvation for all who cling to Him in the chaos of this judgment. And they will receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly as Joel saw as he looked through time. Joel looked down the telescope of history, not from the side as Jake told us in Sunday school, but down the timeline of history. He saw all of these events happening, judgment, salvation. He couldn't tell you exactly how it was going to align because that didn't matter. 
the picture lined up to show him God pouring out his wrath on Israel, his own son, so that he could save his people. All of history culminates in Christ. Jesus, who received the name above every name so that everyone who calls upon His name will be saved. It's only because of God's steadfast, promise-keeping covenant love that He made a way to satisfy the demands of justice and put on display His mercy and grace. He poured out His Spirit so all of us become prophets. All of us can now see Jesus that every circumstance in all of our lives is to point you to Jesus. You're suffering with your health. Look to Christ. Look how beautiful He is. The nation is falling apart. Look to Christ. He's on the throne. That's what prophecy is. Look to Jesus. Repent. And remain faithful to Him. If we try to take this picture apart and arrange its individual pieces in some order, it doesn't make sense. Because it's all designed to fit together and stand in this line and look. He's glorious. That's what Joel saw. All of history, every moment of judgment and salvation pointed to Christ. The exodus from Egypt. The Assyrian and Babylonian exile. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The future return. And every moment of trial you face in your life is a day of the Lord calling you. Forcing you to see the image of Christ more fully to cling to Him more tightly, to hear His words more clearly. Peter then picks up the pen and writes a letter to suffering Christians in Rome in 1 Peter. And he says, Christ already paid for your sins. There's another coming day of the Lord. He has this tension in mind. It's already happened, and yet there's another coming. There's a day of glorification yet to be revealed. But for those who trust in Christ, the day of judgment has already happened when all your sins were put on Him. And that future day of the Lord is just a glorious day of salvation that we all long for. So, until that day, today, every day you face trials is a day of the Lord calling you to trust in Christ. The author of Hebrews picks up on this same theme and he uses a psalm that reflects back on Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And he says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of the Lord. No matter what circumstances cloud your vision and seek to steal and destroy your joy, you can have rest today by clinging to Christ and you will receive His promised blessing. The blessing might not be relief from your trials. Might not be clarity on what comes next. Notice at the end of verse 14, the blessing through this day of the Lord, listen how glorious this is, is a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It's kind of uninspiring. Woohoo! You get to make an offering in the temple? It's because we don't understand their culture, what God called them to To those people, that was a promise of God's presence. You get to bring a meal from your harvest of grain and grapes to bring wine and food to God's house, to His table, and eat a meal with God? That's the great blessing He pours out on His people. 
fellowship with God. The promised blessing may not be relief from your trials. Knowledge of what to do next. Prosperity, health, ease, comfort in life. Those things will be given to us one day. But the real blessing is simply knowing and being known by God. Fellowship with Him. With His people. All of you have His Spirit if you are in Christ. I get to fellowship with God by gathering with you. We get to hear His voice speaking to us when we open His Word and speak into each other's lives. Molly and I have said through this season of suffering that though we'd never want to do it again, we'd never ask for it, we are thankful for it. Because now we know Christ in deeper ways than we ever could have before. We've known His presence being among His people. We've heard His voice more clearly as you speak His Word to us. So whatever day of the Lord you face. Call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Call upon the name of the Lord and He will bless you with His presence. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You for bringing all of history into focus for us. There was nothing else we need to see except the face of Christ. I pray that Jesus continues to be put on display today. I am grateful that though they look to me and see one image reflecting Christ, I get to look out to them and see a hundred reflections of Your grace, of Your mercy, of Your kindness. hundred people speaking Your truth back to me. God, thank You that we have become more than prophets like Joel. We have become indwelt by Your Spirit. I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not received that salvation, who dreads every day that they would cling to Christ. Whatever they go through, cling to Him and find the rest that all of our hearts long for. Thank You. Thank You for this peace, for this Your presence to us in Christ. Amen.